Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Martin Mascant. Martin is a U.S. tax partner who is a member of our integrated global structuring team and leads our foreign tax desk in New York City that represents over 30 countries. Before joining the U.S. firm, Martin was a partner in our Dutch firm. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. Well, we have spent a lot of time on the first five episodes, Martin, focusing on U.S. tax reform and a lot of stuff obviously going on in the, in the U.S. for both foreign-based multinationals as well as U.S.-based multinationals. But what I continue to remind my clients, my colleagues, my fellow partners is there is a ton of stuff taking place outside the U.S. that under any normal time period, if we did not have U.S. tax reform, we would be so insanely focused as advisors, as practitioners, as clients on these non-U.S. changes. So maybe before we even dive into what those changes are, why is it important for our listeners to understand what's actually taking place outside the U.S.? Yeah, that, that's a great point, Doc. And as you said, the moment this was a world without U.S. tax reform. This is the, the 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 changes that are taking place are unprecedented. I c I cannot think of a period in my career where I've seen so many changes taking place at the same time. Um, those changes, what are they doing, and why are they so important for our listeners? Um, let's start with U.S. tax reform. Um, we have a worldwide system nowadays. Mm -hmm. You can call it like that. And generally, in a worldwide system, foreign tax credits are provided um, for taxes paid to other jurisdictions. Uh, you want to prevent economic double taxation. I think in the new system, there's a, a serious limit put on the use of foreign tax credits. So the foreign taxes you pay, you may not be able to offset against your U.S. tax liability. So the foreign taxes may become a real cost for U.S. multinationals. Yeah, it's even a, more than in the past. Yeah, it's a great point, Martin. So as we think about, first of all, 965 and our toll charge, yeah. just getting cash back to the U.S. that has already been subject to tax as a result of the toll charge to the extent that they're withholding taxes or other taxes imposed on bringing that cash back, then you know those taxes are potentially haircut. Under the new regime with our, what we call it a territorial system, but I think you more appropriately characterize it as a worldwide system with our new global intangible low taxed income or guilty, what we're seeing is many, many multinationals that have foreign subsidiaries sitting below the U.S. are limited as far as the amount of foreign taxes that they can take to reduce the amount of their guilty income. And accordingly, to the extent that they're paying more foreign tax as a result of any of these changes offshore, that is effectively puts multinationals in a double tax environment. Yeah. So what are those kind of top three things um, that, that you're seeing that, that companies should be the most aware of? Yeah, the three most important developments right now, and it's picking three from a long list, but I would call them the uh, the first one, the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive in the European Union. 
from the second one for me is the multilateral instrument uh, action 15 of the BEPS, uh, the base erosion and profit shifting project of the OCD. And the third one, perhaps surprising, but DAC 6, that's a directive again in the European Union for a mandatory disclosure of cross-border arrangements. So those are the most, uh, yeah, the, the, the most important developments I would pay attention to right now. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think that, you know, there are a whole bunch of other things yeah. that are taking place both inside and outside the EU and then state aid and they, we continue to get new opinions. But the I, I agree that as companies are trying to prioritize and understand what is the most important and when is this going, when are things going to be effective, that those are the three at the top of my list. So let's start with the anti-tax avoidance directive. We have ATAD 1 and ATAD 2. ATAD 1 needs to be implemented by all 28 member states. I think we currently have yep. 28, right? Maybe we'll see if we get to 27 or something less than that. But um, first of all, what is ATAD 1? What are European Union members required to do before, I think it's January 1st, 2019, right? So just a few months away. Indeed, Doc. It's a few months away. And then the European Commission and, Europe and, and with that, the entire European Union um, made it mandatory for the 28 states to implement rules which will introduce CFC legislation in their domestic rules. So controlled foreign corporations. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Our 30% um, EBITDA limitation in the US, 163J, a similar kind of rule, but then in, in Europe. So, so limiting interest expense just across the board and similar to, to the rule that, that we now have in the U.S. with yeah. U.S. reform, but that needs to be applied across all 28 member states. And really, there are some states that already have some interest limitations, but this is going to create theoretically uniform, uniformity across the, the EU. Um, yeah, although the term uniform, uniformity is, is, an, is a great term in respect of the European Union, um, trying to get 28 member states aligned, it requires that countries are giving options. So when implementing those rules, you may still see a patchwork of different ways countries will implement, a different way they will write legislation where we have the directive, which more or less gives the language. We have language, but the way the countries will translate it, may, we may still see a big, you know, big differences in how it's implemented. And it's all a minimum standard. So, um, great point. So, so we have the the CFC rules, yeah. the interest expense, and then what else by January first of this this next year? Um, uh, and general anti avoidance rule. So, an overall rule that says if you enter into non genuine business uh, uh, transactions um, driven by by uh, tax motives, um, countries should be disallowing the the tax benefit. And I think there are some other smaller provisions, but really those are the three, yeah. I think, that are really going to impact a lot of, of global multinationals. Are they exit rules? Is that ATAD 1 or is that ATAD 2? Exit rules is ATAD 1, but that's a 1120, so that, that connects to the, to, the, to the effective date of ATAD 2. Okay. And then what else should we be expecting then for A? So ATAD 1, other than the exit tax rules, is required to be effective January 1st. 2019, so just weeks away at this point. And then what is ATAD 2? What are the member states required to do? Yeah, ATAD 2 is an amendment of ATAD 1, and it will introduce in every country the so-called uh, hybrid rules. And hybrid rules are rules that will deny uh, deductions of payments 
if they are made under um, a hybrid transaction, made uh, buyer to a hybrid entity. So any form of hybridity um, may lead to a disallowance of an, of a deduction of a payment. That's, that's a huge impact. And we have seen those, that the impact, um, when the UK introduced those rules uh, two years ago, what the major impact it could be. Right, and we've seen the U.S. with U.S. reform yeah. through 267 Cap A get into to that uh, issue as well for a hybrid mismatch and imported mismatch, and we'll see how those regulations or proposed regulations come out as far as impacting U.S. multinationals, but all 28 EU member states are going to be required to adopt rules. The U.K. has already adopted their rules, and we've seen not surprisingly just how unbelievably complex those rules are and it'll be interesting i don't think all 27 other member states are going to adopt exactly the uk rules so this should really be incredibly complicated how all these various payments between member states and then even it's not just member states right under atad 2 it's payments to non-member states where deductibility can be denied and trying to work your way through the imported mismatch and just the general mismatch rules is is very complicated yeah and and one example that we already see where countries are maybe uh, early movers is is a country like belgium which will not wait until 1120 but will implement this rule per 1119 so again it, i want to stress with that how important it is to really track the developments outside of the us um and not just look at oh what's in the directive what's what's the rule there what's the effective date but we see countries uh, like belgium implementing earlier we will see in the next couple of weeks i think multiple countries coming out with proposed legislation because as you said doc we are three and a half months away from the first effective date um so there will be a lot of paperwork we have to read through so there's a there's a big challenge for every one of us to track those foreign developments yeah that's been very interesting to me martin that w it's September and we still don't have all the proposed rules from the various member states and in fact I think uh, what my understanding is and maybe you can help clarify is that you know Germany has come out and publicly said that they will not have rules at least published before January 1st of 2019 they're still working through their political process to determine what their rules are and, you know, there are a number of companies that have subsidiaries underneath Germany. It is obviously a huge economy. And, yeah. you know, whether a U.S. multinational acquired a German subsidiary or had that had foreign subsidiaries or a German subsidiary that had a bunch of cash and then invested in other foreign subsidiaries. So the CFC rules will impact any country where you have foreign subsidiaries below. But so I understand that the Germans said that they're not going to get rules out by January 1st, but they still plan to have rules that are effective, which means that we may end up with some retroactive rules for Germany. And can maybe shed a little bit of light on that is, are we going to see that in other countries? Um, no, luckily Germany is, I think, one of the exceptions uh, with, uh, within the European uh, Union. I think most countries will not allow their legislation to have real retroactive effect uh, except you know some some uh, particular circumstances but i think most countries we will see the final rules somewhere by the end of december so i think by now we do have experience how it looks like if a taxi form is signed somewhere in december but uh, so many countries will do it 
second half of December and Germany hopefully the only exception to come out in spring next year with retroactive effect. So I'm not to worry too much about other countries, but Germany is a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Huge economy yeah. impacts a ton of different uh, various types of, of, of taxpayers and, and, and clients. Let's let's spend just a couple minutes on the, the CFC rules because the the OECD when they had suggested that um, you know companies or that countries adopt CFC rules, there were a couple of different options. I think they they call it option A and option B, and there's a little there's some complexity and confusion. Frankly, I still get kind of mixed up between what is option A and what is option B. Can you maybe shed a little bit of light on that? Because we I see a lot of references and various tax articles to option A and option B. Yeah, sure, Doc. Um, if you look at the CUC rules that are proposed within the European Union, um, there's a kind of two-step approach in CFC. First of all, you have to determine whether or not you're a controlled foreign company, and that's a test about ownership and effective tax rates you pay. And then the next step is to determine which amount of the income earned abroad in that controlled foreign company should be included in the tax base in the, in the home country, in one of the EU member states. And that's where the rule will give you two options. Option A is a list of, I would say, a, a, a mechanical test, ca six categories of passive income, like in the company financing income, in the company royalties that you may earn. And the non-distributed income from entities with those types of income should then be included in the tax base of let's say your dutch holding company or your, your uk company um and so for for the u.s professionals that are listening to this podcast yeah. that sounds pretty similar to what we call our foreign personal holding company rules indeed in other words if you're a u.s shareholder that owns a controlling interest a controlled foreign corporation and that cfc has what we commonly refer to as passive type of income, then that passive income is immediately subject to tax at the shareholder level. So that's kind of, that's familiar to me as a U.S. tax practitioner. So what, how is option B differ from that? Option, option B is, for me, more intense pricing approach. It's a transactional method. Uh, the rule more or less say, says, um, the moment you earn income in your controlled foreign company, but you significant people function um, to which you should allocate that profit um, is in the home state, in that AU member state, you should include that income from your controlled foreign company to uh, the, the entity where your significant people function is. So it's, it's an arm's length approach for those of our listeners who are uh, focused on transfer pricing. So you need to understand what's taking place at the CFC. Yeah. I think uh, with the way some of the jurisdictions have proposed it, you also need to see what's taking place back at the parent company at the shareholder level and then allocate those profits appropriately between the parent company and the controlled foreign corporation. Yeah, that's 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 correct, Doc. So it's it's a study and um, whereby you need to determine who's doing what, what's your entire value chain more or less, and do you allocate your, your income uh, accordingly. And sorry to make it, make it complex, every time you ask me a question, I come up with exceptions and sure. new rules, but that's how the European Union works. And that's what makes it so complex, but also so much fun and interesting for us, is some countries may do a combination of the rules even. 
you'll have they will go for option B as the main rule, but for an add-on for option A in certain circumstances. Again, it's not a uniform process within the European Union. It's a complex um, implementation scheme that's happening and you really have to track because you may end up with a combination of the two options. Uh, and you have to figure out what does that mean. Right. We've already seen a little bit of that because the UK is ahead of, of its time, if you will, particularly with respect to the hybrid mismatch yeah. rules. And what we saw was as part of that process, and that's a couple years old at this point, right? Or yeah, I guess yeah. so. A couple years old. Boy, how time flies. Um, that you know, the OECD had recommended certain type of hybrid mismatch arrangements, and then the, the UK studied it and adopted rules that even expanded beyond what the OECD had originally suggested, um, for example, to include branches, branch structures. And then the OECD went back and adopted or and changed, adapted and changed their proposed uh, framework, right, for, for others to... to to, to use as they're changing their rules. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the CFC rules come in, as the interest limitation rules, as the GAR, what every jurisdiction does and then how other jurisdictions are influenced and whether it could potentially change some of the EU and or OECD's recommendations. Indeed. And we saw it already with Australia, which is, of course, not EU, but they in, um, introduced their hybrid rules. They piggyback from the UK rules, but give their own nuances to the rules. And in general, what we can also expect is when the AU countries will implement those rules, they will write rules and not every country will get it right the first time. Um, they may look and learn from each other. Hey, what kind of rule did you add on or what's the nuances you did? So it's not a one-time implementation, but we may see changes continue in the next couple of years. So what do you recommend, just focusing on ATAD, what do you recommend for, for our listeners to do? I mean, holy cow, we're you know just a, a few weeks, months away to make major changes with respect to holding companies, financing companies, you know, these structures that were built, frankly, oftentimes for U.S. multinationals under a, a system that's even no longer relevant. What are you advising taxpayers do between now and January to get ready for, for ATAD? Yeah, really step up the strategic planning um, you do. And what I mean with that is looking at your structure. Is my structure still fit for purpose from both a U.S. perspective, but especially also the, the non-U.S. perspective? Do you have holding companies in structures where if CFC rules may kick in, you have to include income of those controlled foreign companies held by that holding company with financing structures perhaps in, um, somewhere down below? What's the impact of 30% EBITDA rule, for instance? And of course, the hybrid rules that we just talked about. Every payment, and do not only think about interest and royalties, but payments for cost of goods sold. Start an assessment where you may see a big impact of those news, uh, new rules kicking in and see what are the changes you may want to make to mitigate those uh, th that impact. Because it's really important to understand what's happening before you're stuck with a high tax bill uh, in your foreign um, structure without the possibility to get any foreign tax credits here in the U.S. if you're not careful. Yeah, and so for those public companies that have projected rates, I know a number of us have been very focused on the U.S. tax implications, yeah. 
But you're right. If all of a sudden we end up paying more foreign taxes as a result of the CFC rules or denial of interest expense because of uh, the, uh, the new system here within the U.S. and a potential inability to be able to take foreign tax credits or be limited in the ability to take foreign tax credits, those additional foreign taxes just go straight to, to the rate. All right, so let's move on to the multilateral instrument. So help me, I mean, treaties are complicated enough, Martin, that we now have this multilateral instrument that doesn't, that applies across jurisdictions. So help me unpack, like, what is the multilateral instrument? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about, well, why are these changes so important? And particularly the limitation on benefits provisions, which has people so worked up. Sure, Doc. So what is it? It's an instrument developed by the OECD to implement part of their um, base erosion and profit shifting measures in treaties. So it's an overall instrument through which countries can amend their existing treaties at once. So there's no need for countries to uh, renegotiate their existing treaties one by one, which was a process which would take much, too, uh, much uh, time uh, to make those changes effective. So it's it's there's is a big layer which will put over existing treaties with new language with uh, anti abuse measures, uh, which will impact all existing treaties. So it allows a country to effectively ratify, if you will, or whatever process that they need to go through in their particular jurisdiction. And instead of negotiating one by one, whatever countries have also signed up to this multilateral instrument and depending what boxes they check as far as which provisions that they apply, then, you know, one country can effectively change dozens of its own treaties through one signature, right, or one process to get that adopted. Yeah, that's 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 correct because the instrument itself is a big um, menu itself, full of options and reservations, um, a couple of of, of uh, mandatory rules in there. But w countries can simply pick the rules they want to see in the treaties going forward, and then say to all the treaty partners, "That's what I want to change." And then every treaty partner can do the same, and that's how. Um, when there is a match and they go through the ratification procedure, there is a change of the tax treaty. Uh, and it could be 10, 10 treaties, could be 20 uh, treaties, could be 60 treaties changed at once because the country said, I'm going to implement these rules in, in my treaties. So it's mid-September. How many countries at this point-ish have signed on and when do these new treaty provisions potentially come into play? Oh yeah, that's that's now it's, now we come into the real fun stuff. It's it's again it's complicated, um, but be aware, eighty six countries uh, already signed up for it, and we expect during I would say the rest of the year, early next year, another six to ten countries at least to sign up. And no, the U.S. did not sign up, but think about eighty plus countries. That's I would say any important jurisdiction our listeners do business in. Um, so they signed up. They listed the treaties, they listed the provisions they want to have. And then those countries need to ratify the instrument because in the end it impacts treaties. So they have to go through domestic ratification procedures. But be aware, it came out one half year, almost two years ago, 86 countries signed up and we already have nine countries who ratified it. If it's ratified, and your question also is, Okay, find all those rules, but when will they become effective? Now, that's a, there's a complicated timeline, but to give you the, the, the short answer is 
some treaties will be affected for withholding taxes per 1119 already. Again, less than four months away. And then you have other things like uh, capital gains exemptions or other treaties. That's 1120 most likely. Uh, we expect that the majority of the countries will have ratified it in the next, I would say, take it six to seven months, meaning that most of our treaties between those 86 countries, so there's a lot of treaties, will be affected 1120 the latest and some already 1119. So again, that gives the pressure on the time. Yeah, so you mentioned withholding taxes. So a lot of particular U.S. multinationals with our new system of whether you want to call it our territorial system or is the way you characterize it, I think, more appropriately, our new worldwide system, think that they can just bring cash back now to the because it's been subject to taxes guilty and that which has not been subject to tax can come back with our new dividends received deduction. So withholding taxes become very important on distributions up through chains, right? And one of the things within the multilateral instrument is this new provision within the limitation on benefits provisions that is a principal purpose test. And, you know, if a principal purpose of that holding company was to take advantage of the treaty, then you may not qualify for the, the treaty. So can you shed a little bit of light on, you know, what, what does that mean? And, you know, how are you seeing taxpayers kind of get ready for this? And I, I assume it kind of goes into the same, you know, the, the advice that you gave for companies with ATAD and CFC, our structure is still fit for purpose. Do we meet this new limitation on benefits provision? Yeah, um, the principal purpose test is a very interesting provision. It's, it's new in treaties, or at least some, some new treaties have, uh, have those rules already, but uh, to think of that, if you use a treaty, um, you rely on a tax treaty, but if you do that to rely on it, you will be denied the benefit of it. That, that sounds really funny, to be honest. Uh, especially if you look at purpose of treaty is an incentive for cross-border trade. And tax is part of the cost. Um, so um, it will have a huge impact because a lot of our listeners have picked locations or or transactions for all kind of purposes but one of the purposes may very well be that there is a beneficial tax treatment because that's part of the cost structure and since it's a, a main principle it needs the main principle if one of the main principles is indeed to to rely on the treaty it will be denied so there will be a huge and a huge impact there's um not much guidance to be honest uh, the examples you get from from the OCD and the papers are really black and white that's not while the actual world is gray it's more nuanced um, so it's pretty tough to get in you know an answer that you can really rely on um, what's the, what's the actual impact in a certain case but what I see companies do to be, to get prepared is first of all start assessing where you rely on a treaty start considering why why did we enter into the transaction or arrangement and um because first of all the rule has no grandfathering for existing structures it just will apply on existing structures so you have to perhaps go back in your files and think okay why did we enter into this transaction and what was the business purpose of it was it an acquisition was it um we wanted the protection from bilateral investment treaties all good reasons but you have to think again what what are all the reasons why we entered into into this transaction and not only look at your file uh, as 
for instance, uh, responsible for taxes, what are the tax consequences? It's the bigger picture you need to know. And perhaps you may find out that you mainly relied on tax reasons to enter in a transaction. And at that point, you really must consider, is this structure still fit for purpose? Or will authorities have a great argument to deny me any treaty benefits and we will be presented with a, a you know, much higher withholding taxes, for instance, on the cash repatriation we are doing from the foreign entities back to the U.S.? Yeah, and this could be very important, particularly for U.S. multinationals, publicly traded, particularly that uh, have removed maybe their APB 23 assertion because they plan to bring all the cash back from their foreign subsidiaries back to the U.S. Well, if you are going to remove your APB 23, then you need to assume that all that cash is going to come back. And then you need to understand, well, what are the withholding tax consequences of distributions up through a chain? And obviously, if you do not meet treaty benefits or do not get treaty benefits because of these changes to limitation on benefits provisions, then that could significantly impact your rate if you have removed the APB 23 provisions. And so... You know, I just think, again, because there's so much stuff going on outside or with U.S. tax reform that these really important issues that are taking place outside the U.S. could really impact a, a, a number of, of our clients and a number of taxpayers. Yeah, great point, Doc. And especially if you think of it that when countries sign up and ratify it and deposit the instrument of ratification with the OCD, you can call, you can say that's enacted law perhaps. And if one is enacted law, even when it's not effective, you have to be take that into account if, if you are um, working through your provisions for your accounts, uh, perhaps, uh, especially on those dividend payments. So um, this is something all the listeners need to pay attention to. All right. So last but not least, DAC6, DOC6, I still don't know how to pronounce it, but um, it looks like mandatory... What I think we've seen in the U.S. in the past, tax shelter reporting requirements that the EU has now looked to require all member states to adopt rules related to certain tax shelters or what they define as, you know, certain tax shelters. But help me understand what is Doc 6, Martin, and I understand it already applies to transactions that are currently taking place, even though no jurisdictions have actually proposed rules, but the EU has. So can you unpack that a little for us? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, DAC 6, um, it's an amendment of an existing directive on, on uh, administrative cooperation. That's that's where the, the, the letters uh, come from. Um, but the rules that will have to be implemented by all the 28 member states again will require intermediaries and intermediaries like tax advisors like PwC, accountants, perhaps lawyers, banks, to disclose um, any cross-border arrangement where the AU is involved. So uh, it could be AU to non-AU, AU to AU, um, with the local authorities if that cross-border arrangement meets certain hallmarks. And those are the hallmarks are thought to give an indication that a potential aggressive tax planning structure. So those are the rules. They, the effective date that you mentioned, Doc, um, the rules need to be adopted in countries by 1120. Um, filing, uh, the disclosure of the, of the, of the uh, transaction needs to take place on somewhere mid-2020. Um, 
but the period over which need to be reported, that's already started. It started on June 25th of this year. So we are already in the middle of a period where whatever you do in the AU, you have to check as an um, company, but also as an intermediary, um, to see whether or not uh, that transaction meets the hallmarks and then it needs to be reported. You have to track what you're doing right now and to be prepared to file it in two years from now. And what's fascinating to me about this, Martin, is that as we know from our experience with ATAD, both ATAD 1 and ATAD 2, and what we discussed earlier, each jurisdiction could adopt rules differently, right? They may tweak the definitions or the language within the hallmarks that define what type of transaction needs to be reported. So both advisors as well as taxpayers need to keep track of transactions that are taking place currently for rules that we don't even know exactly how they're going to be written. Now we have the hallmarks that are written by the EU. And so this is very challenging for advisors as well as taxpayers, as far as, you know, what transactions may be subject to the reporting requirement. The list of hallmarks is very broad, broadly written. So transactions, for example, we are just taking advantage of losses uh, may be required to, 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 to be subject to these particular rules. And so, you know, it's it's very challenging, I think, for both taxpayers and advisors as far as keeping what we're supposed to keep track of and then what we may have to file, you know, potentially, you know, 15 months from now. And exactly. And that's why we say we have to be very conservative in our approach right now. Since we don't have the final rules, you don't want to miss out on a transaction to be reported. So you want to track more or less every transaction which of course is in the crosshairs of the hallmarks but where you could even those transactions where you could think hmm is this yes or no in the crosshairs of the tra- of the of the hallmarks um and and one add-on for our listeners although it's um mandatory disclosure by intermediaries but if your intermediaries have legal privilege or you're implementing structures yourself companies need to disclose. So there isn't disclosure anyway taking place. The question is only is by who is the intermediary? Is it a company? And then you have to figure out in which country you have to disclose, but you have to disclose. So um, the overall picture is keep track of all the transactions you're, you're doing right now with the European Union and going forward. And in 15 months from now, um, no, sorry, it's, it's, it's a bit longer. It's, it's August, 2020. Um, you have to report it and all the time you have to track um, on whatever you do and make sure you have the list that, that need to be uh, reported. Well, I'm, I'm certain Martin will revisit this as we get more rules and guidance from the EU on DAC 6, because this is something that's going to really impact everybody across the globe who interacts with the EU. So we have the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive 1 and 2 that is coming into play January 1st, 2019, certain provisions that are going to come in a year later that are going to impact a lot of our listeners. The multilateral instrument, which impacts everybody who is doing cross-border transactions beyond the EU. We have dozens and dozens of countries, as you mentioned, over 80 that have already signed up and will be over that 100 threshold, presumably very quickly. And then obviously DAC 6, which also applies to the EU, are tax reporting requirements that are rules that haven't been drafted yet, but yet already apply. So a lot of things to keep track of in addition to U.S. tax reform. 
So let us thank our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Martin Mascant, U.S. tax partner and PwC's foreign task desk leader in New York City. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. 